Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly and Rihanna Patrick with you. How are you doing, Rihanna? I'm good, Tom, but more to the point, how are you? You went out last night. Oh, yeah, burning the candle. I went to an Elton John gig. Um, did start nice and early, 7.30, bang on the clock. And wow, he's just so incredible. I'd never seen him live before, and this is his final Australian tour, so I really wanted to get there. And his voice is still so amazing. Obviously, there's so many good songs for him to to bang out, but he sat there at the piano absolutely going for it. And he had an amazing band as well. And some of these guys have been with him from the start. His drummer is 73 years old, um, Nigel Olsen, and he absolutely rocks. So it was an incredible show, and I'm a little bit husky. Yeah, I'm sure you are. <laughs> so we've got an interesting interview from you today, Rihanna, um, all about the COVID explosion in China. Yeah, well, with its sudden end to COVID zero, there's an explosion of cases. And in this briefing, we're going to find out how China are really coping. People are not able to get into hospitals. They're just full. They don't have enough beds. Being turned away, being referred to other hospitals. So the the whole system is really straining to cope. All right, the COVID explosion in China. That's today's briefing with Rihanna Patrick. First, here are the headlines of the day. It is the 19th of January. It is Thursday. A Qantas flight has issued a mayday call following an engine failure before landing safely at Sydney Airport. Be a slight shudder, but that was it. And they were so professional about it and so calm and cool, collected. Which... So you had no idea really what was No, not at the time. We didn't realise it was actually the whole engine had gone. I mean, we just heard a bang and that was it. Yeah, that's passengers speaking to ABC News after the flight. And the plane was flying from Auckland before one engine failed yesterday afternoon. The pilot then made the mayday call, which happened about an hour before landing, but passengers weren't told until the plane had landed safely. The call is only made when an aircraft is in immediate and extreme danger and requires assistance straight away. And Qantas says it will release more information once engineers have assessed the aircraft. Wow, pretty scary. Comes after another incident just before Christmas where a Qantas flight travelling from Sydney to London had to make an emergency landing due to a, a faulty indicator in the cockpit. I think it makes sense they don't tell the passengers till after though. <laughs> you don't need to know that during a flight yeah. unless you need to know that, do you? No, and look, that's what pilots and obviously cabin crew are trained to do is to maintain all of that mm. calmness until they're out of the situation that they're in and to keep passengers uh, as calm as possible. So they're trained to do this. Um, that Mayday call was also downgraded a little later to a pan, which is possible assistance needed. Um, but yeah, like most passengers have said, they could hear this bang and said it was just turbulence. So they didn't really know what was going on until they landed. And Rafael Nadal has made a shock exit from the second round of the Australian Open and it's raised questions about his future after a hip injury cost him yesterday's match. I don't know. I don't know what can happen in the in the future, but I need to to avoid <laughs> again a long period of time outside. That's Nadal speaking on Channel 9 after the match yesterday. So he was knocked out by an unseeded American player called Mackenzie McDonald. And I will say, he deserves a lot of credit. He played an amazing game of tennis. He barely made a mistake and he pushed Nadal around, but clearly Nadal was struggling. He left the court to a standing ovation because I think everyone was aware that this might be the last time we see him play. Um, Remember last year, he won the Australian Open. Here he was really struggling 
with an injury. So, yeah, let's hope he does come back because he's amazing to watch. In the UK, the Church of England has ruled out allowing same-sex marriage. Bishops met yesterday and, after five years of consultation and debate, decided no. But next month, they'll consider allowing blessings for same-sex marriages. The Church will also issue a formal apology to LGBTQ people for the rejection, exclusion and hostility they have felt from within the Church, Tom. Yeah, so this is a strange one. I feel like they're going to be making more apologies because they haven't given same-sex couples the full rights of marriage in the church. They they won't allow you to get married in the church, but they're considering blessing it once you've been married somewhere else. So that sounds like rejection and exclusion to me. I don't know how they can make that apology wholeheartedly whilst not giving them full rights. Yeah, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who's the spiritual leader of the church, did acknowledge that the proposal will appear to too far for some, but maybe not nearly far enough for others. But you're right, it is kind of strange to say, we'll bless you, but you can't get married here. Mm. And more workers are going to be given the option to work on Australia Day and take another day off. This is all part of the debate about January 26 and whether it's the right day to celebrate Australia. So Australia's second biggest employer has now changed their policy, uh, Woolworths. Um, You can work on Thursday, take another day off. So Woolworths joins a list that already includes Telstra, which is a big employer, um, the Network 10, Deloitte, PwC, and a few others. So there's clearly a trend taking off here, Rihanna. Yeah. And, you know, it's not unusual actually for smaller companies too, to work that day and then donate their day's worth of wages to an Indigenous organisation as well. I mean, I worked last year. I know a lot of Indigenous people who did work on that day last year. Um, so I think it's that option, which is kind of similar if you aren't someone who also celebrates Christian holidays, for instance, because your faith isn't based in a in a Christian-based religion. So I think it's it's along those lines as well of giving people the option whether they wish to work or not. And Greta Thunberg has been detained by police at a protest in Germany. Um, They were protesting a coal mine expansion that would destroy an old village. She was part of a group of about 50, according to police, that were dangerously close to the edge of an open-cut coal mine. So you'll see pictures getting around the internet of her being um, moved on by police. She was then released without charge. So I guess we're seeing the evolution of Greta Thunberg, (laughs) Rihanna, where she... Initially, we, we saw her as, you know, sitting on the streets in Sweden doing the school protest. She's 20 years old now, out there getting arrested the good old-fashioned way. Yeah, and, you know, that video of her removal too went viral and there were millions of views mm. uh, watching that. So it's, yeah, as you said, it's her coming into her adult years now and still really pushing climate change and being very active in a space that she's been active in for quite a while now. Okay, well, we'll catch you later, Tom. It's time to take a look at China and what's happened since they relaxed their COVID restrictions. It was one of the toughest COVID restrictions the world had ever seen. Despite that, it's now estimated hundreds of thousands of people are infected with the virus in China after the government backflipped on its zero COVID policy. So what's really happening in China and just how severe is this latest outbreak? 
Jeremy Goldcorn has worked in China for two decades as an editor and entrepreneur. He's the editor-in-chief of The China Project and co-founder of the Seneca podcast. Jeremy, thanks for joining the briefing. What's prompted China's President Xi Jinping to overturn this COVID policy and scrap these lockdowns? Well, the Chinese government is a black box, uh, so anybody interpreting it is doing just that, interpreting it. We don't know exactly what happened. Uh, But there are a few theories that make sense. I think on the one hand, uh, with Omicron, infections were already spreading very widely by the end of the summer, uh, so that it may well have become apparent to the authorities that it was not possible to control the spread of the virus, even with the strict lockdown measures and zero COVID policy that China still had in place. So at some point, they realized they had to give up. And then the tipping point was probably, almost certainly, uh, the nationwide protests that broke out you know, all across the country, which were started by a fire in an apartment block in the city of Urumqi in Xinjiang, um, where an, at least 10 people died and many people blamed uh, lockdown measures because the fire department couldn't get there and gates and doors were locked. And that proved the spark that ignited anger across the country and, and led to widespread protests of a kind you know, nobody's seen in China since 1989. And that probably was the death knell for COVID-0. Just how tough were these latest lockdowns? I mean, what are we talking about that residents were under? Well, uh, you know, I think perhaps most famously in the in the spring in Shanghai, uh, the city authorities initially announced that people would have to stay at home for four days. And then that was extended. Depending on the part of the city, it lasted as much as three months. And during that time, in some compounds, residential compounds and apartment buildings, the authorities actually put up fencing to physically, you know, imprison people within their apartment buildings so they could not go out. You know, they locked doors, continued incredibly um, intensive testing, you know, often multiple times a day, even to people locked down. And because of all of this, uh, the city froze up so people couldn't get food, you know, even with China's famously uh, efficient e-commerce couriers and systems, which were allowed to continue working, middle-class people found themselves going hungry because they simply couldn't get enough food because the, the supply chains for groceries were so jammed up. There were variations of this across the country, but, you know, at its most invasive, people were actually locked in their buildings for weeks on end and went hungry. So, Jeremy, you've mentioned there that residents haven't been happy with these lockdowns. But what has been the impact on the country in general because of this policy? Well, the economy has tanked, essentially. Last year was the slowest growth in China in decades. If you uh, talk to Chinese people, it's also very apparent just in ordinary people's lives. Um, Everybody's feeling financially strained. Companies are laying people off. I moved to China in 1995. And ever since then, it's been extraordinary how every year the economy has just continued to power ahead. And suddenly last year, for the first time, there was a, a real slowdown in that, of, you know, that was noticeable to everybody from migrant workers who work as delivery couriers for e-commerce companies to senior engineers at technology companies, which started making huge layoffs. With this new wave of COVID, I mean, what are we talking about in terms of how many people currently have it? Well, we have no idea because the government is basically just not releasing any numbers. You know, they've got some absurd definition of what counts as a COVID case now and what counts as a COVID death. Everybody I know in China who has an elderly relative just about has a story of, uh, you know, a recent death. 
most people I know in China have been infected, uh, you know, in the last few months. So it's it's difficult to, you know, put a number on it. You know, if I had to take a wild guess, I'd say 75% of the country is already infected. But maybe that's just um, the cities. And what the worry is at the moment is that uh, Chinese New Year is coming up. So it's the traditional, you know, it's the holiday season when people travel home to spend the time with their family. So you're going to have a lot of people who are migrant workers in cities going to the countryside where there are a lot of elderly residents, you know, their families, and where vaccination rates are pretty low. But it's pretty big in the cities, and it's likely to continue into a second wave with this Chinese New Year transportation and, you know, going home effect. And Jeremy, that is the fear at the moment, isn't it? Those super spreading events to rural areas as people go home. But what have been other effects of these lockdowns being lifted? I mean, I understand that travel is also up. The day after they really ended the lockdowns, we reported on a travel website that said its bookings were 650% up, you know, from one day to the next. Uh, People are traveling again, both domestically, but also internationally, because although for the first two years of the pandemic, while in most Western countries, we were under one form of lockdown or another, or at least people were reluctant to travel, within China, they had managed to control the spread of the, the virus. So within China, people were traveling quite a lot, but they couldn't travel internationally. And, you know, there's a growing cohort of people in China who really enjoy traveling internationally. None of them have been able to do it for three years. So many of those people are engaging in what they call revenge spending. You know, they're the first time they're allowed to go overseas in a long time. So they're going. Of course, they're not being let in everywhere now because some countries are putting restrictions on, on arrivals from China. With this policy reverse, I mean, what has that meant for, I guess, the health system at the moment? I mean, how was it coping prior to the lockdown being lifted and how is it coping now? Well, China's health care system is rather rickety for a number of reasons. There are not enough doctors and clinics, uh, for one, and there isn't the culture or the system of having a primary, uh, you know, a GP or a family doctor. In China, people don't have a family doctor like that. They tend to go to the hospital for any uh, ailment. Even in regular flu season, say, there's, the hospitals will get overburdened because everybody will go to the hospital, whether they've got cancer or a wart on their toe. So it means the whole system is particularly vulnerable to you know, surges and in, in infectious disease. So that's happening right now. People are not able to get into hospitals. They're just full. They don't have enough beds being turned away, being referred to other hospitals. So the, the whole system is really straining to cope. There's also been reports that... There's a, a Pfizer-developed COVID-19 drug. Um, I think it's Paxlovid. Paxlovid, yeah. Yeah, um, which Chinese authorities have refused to put on the national reimbursement list, which would allow people to get it for cheaper. But is it true that there's become this black market for things like that drug, but also with those other supply issues with paracetamol being hard to get as well, that getting medicine illegally and the black market for that has also increased? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Paxlovid, the authorities are not actually even allowing the import of the drug. And they're still in negotiations with Pfizer and they're telling Pfizer it's too expensive. I have heard some stories anecdotally of, you know, black market for, you know, paracetamol and ibuprofen. More frequently, I've seen credible reports of pharmacies breaking open bottles and packages of, you know, anti-fever drugs to sell them in smaller quantities so that they could give them to more customers. And I assume 
make more profit per pill. So there's that happening as well, which isn't exactly a black market, but is a practice that certainly would be frowned upon in many, <laughs> in the rules of many medical systems. Yeah, Jeremy, when COVID was breaking out and the pandemic is breaking out across the world, there was this level of mis and disinformation going around. I mean, has that been the same in China? I mean, has China seen just this mis and disinformation on COVID, what works, what doesn't, what it is? You know, have they seen the same levels um, that we saw when it first happened? In some ways, you know, the disinformation, misinformation hasn't been as wild as you've seen in Australia or the United States. But there is a lot of disinformation. There's a lot of sort of folk beliefs about, you know, remedies, ginger and, you know, lemons. So there was a run on lemons uh, a few months ago because some doctor said it was good if you had a fever to drink, you know, hot lemon tea or something. And suddenly the people were panic buying lemons and there were no lemons available and the price shot up. And a similar thing happened with canned peaches for the same kind of reasons. There's also the government has all along been um, promoting the use of uh, traditional Chinese medicines uh, to treat COVID. There are different opinions of this. In my own opinion, it is um, 100% nonsense. And it has been used as an excuse by the government, essentially, for not having enough Western medicines in the past, or, you know, for asserting that there's a special Chinese way of dealing with the virus, which I personally would count as misinformation. But that's in the mix as well. So you have uh, people believing a lot of different things, even though the type of misinformation is very different from what you've had in the West. Jeremy, we've been talking a lot about, I guess, what regular people are up against with this current wave. What is morale like? I mean, we've mentioned that people are obviously traveling again. Chinese New Year is about to happen. But yeah, where are people feeling after coming out of these lockdowns, after being in them for so long? It's almost like a, a dual personality disorder right now, because on the one hand, there are a lot of people who are deeply upset about the way things were just suddenly let go because they have elderly relatives and family members literally dying. You know, the crematoria overflowing, the intensive care wards in the hospitals, you know, can't cope. So you have a lot of anger about this and a lot of sadness and gloom and depression and people feeling unhappy or let down. But at the same time, you also have a lot of young people who are unlikely to get very sick. The Chinese vaccines aren't as effective as the mRNA vaccines, but they still do have some kind of you know useful effect. And you have a lot of young people who, frankly, have either already been infected and were fine or you know are not really scared of it, who are really enjoying themselves and um, in some ways in the best mood that they've been in for three years because they're free at last. So it's a very strange moment in China. What do you think that generation loss is going to mean in, in coming years of, of so many of the elderly being the ones that are being affected by COVID? I mean, it's very difficult to say. Some observers think that this is really going to be the death knell for the perceived legitimacy of the Communist Party and the, the idea that the Chinese Communist Party are you know, highly competent rulers that the people will allow to be autocrats because they perform well, essentially, that, that this myth is now at last being shattered. You know, that wouldn't surprise me. On the other hand, the government, the Communist Party, are very, very good at changing the story, changing the narrative. They're very good at juicing the economy when they, they need to. Um, so I wouldn't count them out. 
Jeremy Goldcorn there, the editor-in-chief of The China Project and co-founder of the Sinica podcast, and clearly feeling for the people in China right now who are currently dealing with this current wave and hoping that the Chinese New Year doesn't become the super spreader that it is being predicted to be. Listener.